Hello, and welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Freen Sharif, endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and an associate director at the Center of Cancer Immunotherapy at Duke Cancer Institute. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang. Hi, everyone. I'm Tian Zhang, a GU medical oncologist and associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, Simmons Comprehensive Cancer Center. Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. We have joining us today Dr. Ilad Sharon and Dr. Rafay Nakash. Dr. Sharon is an accomplished oncologist at the NCI or National Cancer Institute. He co-directs immunotherapy trials at the Cancer Therapy Evaluation Program and serves as an attending physician in NCI's Developmental Therapeutics Clinic. As part of his work in immunotherapy drug development, he has made major efforts to advance the understanding of immune-related adverse events, including the establishment of the Alliance NIH Biorepository for Immune-Related Adverse Events. Our second guest today is Dr. Nakash, an oncologist with a focus on early phase clinical trials, drug development, and biomarkers in immunotherapy. He's currently an assistant professor of medicine at the Oklahoma Health Stevenson Cancer Center. Welcome to Checkpoint Now, Elad and Rafi. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Elad, can you share some of uh, your professional journey and interests in cancer immunotherapy? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, you know, I think that what we've seen over the past uh, decade to decade and a half in uh, oncology um, is this explosion of interest actually in cancer immunotherapy. For the most part, uh, I think that there's been um, this extraordinary acceptance that the immune system is playing a critical role in the selection um, uh, frankly, of uh, uh, tumors that end up becoming clinically relevant. A lot of things that we thought were really important in terms of precision biology uh, ended up um, uh, being um, uh, driver mutations that were actually selected for the immune system. And what we've developed um, uh, over time actually has been this um, uh, set of blunt tools um, that uh, started, um, I, I guess, from a clinical perspective with CTLA-4, um, the approval of ipilimumab and the clinical trials earlier um, in that area from um, uh, people like uh, uh, Jeff Bluestone and Jim Allison, who helped develop that for cancer uh, uses, um, and of course the PD-1 agents that have just been extraordinarily uh, effective in complementing much of the work that has been done previously in terms of, um, uh, you know, developing uh, oncology therapeutics over the past, like I said, decade to decade and a half. Um, so, you know, as somebody who was really just dedicated to finding new therapies that might be um, appropriate for patients, um, uh, I think that at least for me personally, there was this real natural affinity for what was um, uh coming up in the field at the same time as I was uh, initiating my work um, uh, and uh, developing myself as a cancer drug developer uh, at the National Cancer Institute. So I started just um, uh, right after fellowship at the NCI um, as uh, a drug developer 
Um, and what was interesting, at least for me, was that um, you know, we had the opportunity to sort of think a little bit like a drug company um, uh, at the NCI um, uh, CTEP, the Cancer Ther Therapy Evaluation Program that you mentioned before. Um, but um, think a little bit like a drug company, but really think about it from the perspective of the public good. Um, uh, so, um, you know, we have resources really kind of unparalleled at the NCI, a network with uh, a thousand sites around the United States and all these uh, cooperative groups um, that are involved um, along with uh, a number of major academic centers. Um, and I got a chance um, probably from the 2012 through 2015 range to sort of uh, learn how um, uh, drug development uh, really works on a national scale using a public company kind of model. Um, and then, you know, suddenly in 2015, instead of um, uh, just looking at all these legacy products that we had, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to actually work with these um, uh, extremely novel uh, therapeutic uh, entities that were um, um, uh, really revolutionizing melanoma and lung cancer care, but clearly useful across a broad array of different uh, malignancies. And, and, and so I think that I feel, at least at this point, that I've developed my professional journey, if that's the question that you were asking, along with cancer immunotherapy um, almost at the same time. So um, it wasn't it wasn't very difficult, I guess, for me to, you know, find uh, a new love. I was always probably fascinated by the immune system. Um, uh, and uh, I'm probably not alone in that, uh, not only from the immune system perspective, but certainly also from the immunotherapy perspective uh, for cancer. Well, that's an incredible um, story, Alad. I'm sure it's going to inspire many others who uh, want to do what you do and want to learn from what you do. Uh, now, Rafi, let's move on to your journey and how you decided to focus on phase one clinical trials and immunotherapy biomarkers and adverse events. Thank you for that question, um, Afrin. So my journey um, started, I would say, uh, a little bit of it started during my medical school when I um, used to really uh, be fascinated with Robbins pathology. And uh, you guys might have read Robbins during your medical school as well. But it was um, um, a, a, one of those books that I really uh, was fascinated with, especially the chapter on immunology. So as I was training uh, in my residency, I did my uh, research at Roswell Park Cancer Institute under uh, Dr. Elizabeth Griffiths. Uh, where I worked on the cytobine and its uh, immune effects in AML. So I didn't want to do, I learned pretty early, I didn't want to do uh, leukemias, but that was a stepping stone. I also spent some time uh, at the National Institute of Immunology in uh, New Delhi when I finished my medical school. Uh, so some of these uh, events shaped up uh, my career trajectory in one way or another, and then during fellowship, um, as I was doing my medical oncology fellowship at East Carolina University, I um, started learning about immunotherapy, immune adverse events, which is when immuno-oncology was, you know, entering uh, or, you know, gaining momentum in this field. And then one of the events that um, I would like to highlight that really uh, shaped up my interest in uh, early phase trials, immuno-oncology biomarkers, and immune adverse events was this 
SITC, Society of Immunotherapy of Cancer, um, uh, when, uh, Society of Immunotherapy of Cancer event um, called the Sparkathon event, which involved selection of around 30, 33 early career investigators around the country uh, coming together from different fields, some PhDs, some mathematical oncologists, some MD-PhDs, to tackle uh, interesting problems in immunotherapy um, uh, that immunotherapy was facing. So we spent three days together, and that was one of those events that really shaped up um, the next few years of my career in terms of collaborations with people that I met there, people who had interest in immune adverse events, immunotherapy trials, immunotherapy biomarkers. And uh, then subsequently, I was working at the National Cancer Institute on a phase one drug development uh, fellowship because I really wanted to understand um, the mechanistic aspects of how early phase clinical trials function, how patients do on early phase clinical trials, and how do we use early phase clinical trials uh, to inform our drug discovery and biomarker research. So it was a combination of events, but I would give a lot of credit to that SITSI Sparkathon event. Uh, and wherever I go, uh, I meet people and I tell them about it. And it's just some unique um, experiences that um, sometimes you know help one in understanding where one's interests lie. And that is one event that kind of shaped my uh, career trajectory. Thank you, Rafi. That was uh, very insightful. And I mean, so glad Sparkathon had a, um, sounds like seminal um, event for you um, to make those collaborations happen. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit. And um, a lot, I'm curious, historically, um, what were some of the limitations for including those patients with baseline autoimmune diseases um, from being treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors? Sure. Yeah. So from a drug development perspective, it's actually quite common to, um, especially in early phase trials, exclude a fair number of patients from um, uh, some of the early work in determining whether or not there might be uh, a benefit to a new drug. Um, uh, unfortunately, what that uh, means ultimately is that um, uh, while we should be opening up the spigot, uh, as it were, uh, making it so that not necessarily um, those best fit patients are the only ones that we're studying. There's a tendency, I think, especially in the private sector, um, so a lot of company-sponsored trials, to really sort of continue um, restricting eligibility um, to patients that um, are, uh, again, the best fit, the, the healthiest, um, so that you can see um, uh, uh, at least relative to the fact that they might have a given cancer, um, whether or not your agent actually has um, the desired effect or improvement in uh, survival response rates, whatever the endpoint that happens to be chosen for your um, given trial. Um, and so, uh, you know, as part of that, I think that it was actually relatively easy for the people who were at least initially designing a lot of the trials to argue that uh, patients with autoimmune diseases should be excluded from um, uh, those clinical trials. And I think that's, act that's actually still almost universally the case. Um, if you have a serious autoimmune disease, um, there are very few clinical trials that involve immune checkpoint inhibitors or really immunotherapies of any kind that actually allow for those patients to enroll. Um, 
that said, um, you know, uh, with regard to a lot of these other restricted eligibilities, there's been kind of a movement to try to loosen the reins, so to speak, and make it so that if you um, know that you don't have renal clearance, for instance, with a given agent, that you go ahead and allow patients, even patients that might have renal failure, uh, to enroll on a clinical trial. Um, uh, it's difficult sometimes to get companies to agree. Um, uh, but I know that the FDA, um, Friends of Cancer Research, um, uh, the NCI as well, um, are all really trying to push the industry and the field in that direction. The one area where I don't see that happening all that quickly um, is in those patients that have, um, again, more serious autoimmune conditions, uh, rheumatologic conditions um, uh, of various kinds that are still, like I said, quite often restricted from immunotherapy clinical trials, um, and certainly those with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And the fear, despite the fact that there has been work in this area by people like um, Alex Menzies from Australia and Hussein Talby and uh, Doug Johnson and many others, um, that uh, that by giving an immune-mediated treatment that one might actually potentiate and worsen the outcome for individuals that have, again, a serious autoimmune condition of some kind or another. Um, the one exception to that is those patients that have um, endocrinopathies um, because, for the most part, um, at least with regard to, um, you know, diabetes, uh, thyroid disorders, um, uh, even adrenal disorders, it's a little bit easier to replace those given hormones and to follow those with um, uh, the uh, specialists in the endocrine uh, faculties um, uh, around, uh, around the U.S. Um, so that hasn't been necessarily a direct problem, but um, with regard to inflammatory bowel disease, um, uh, the rheumatologic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, polymyalgia, rheumatica, um, uh, you know, lupus, those, those patients uh, quite often are, are, are being excluded from the clinical trials. Again, really meant to be, um, uh, you know, potentially protecting those patients from the clinical trials, but also probably getting to the point where individuals um, who have those conditions then don't have a uh, severe toxicity that affects the development of the agent or the interpretation of the data. Well, that's a that's incredible insights, a lot. Um, I think this is a great segue into what the question I was going to ask you, which is that about your AIM Nevo study that is designed to look at the safety of using nivolumab in patients with known pre-existing autoimmune disease. So, can you tell us more about this very interesting and timely trial? Certainly, yes. Uh, so um, this is a national trial that's actually um, co-led by a couple of investigators at MD Anderson and myself. So um, uh, Kathy Drumbrava, um, Hussein Talby at MD Anderson, um, and we have um, sites at major academic centers all around the U.S., including, uh, of course, uh, UT Southwestern, uh, uh, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, um, Emory, and some other um, uh, major sites um, all around the U.S. The, um, uh, the basic idea was that we were trying to be in a situation where we were 
decentralizing our uh, experiences, uh, as it were, and devolving um, some decision-making power to uh, experts of the autoimmune diseases that we were interested in. So uh, Mike Dugan um, at um, uh, Mass General and Dana-Farber, um, uh, along with um, people like Mimi Wang at uh, MD Anderson, uh, helped lead the inflammatory bowel disease arm of the trial. And they design what they consider a mild, moderate, and severe form of um, both ulcerative colitis and um, uh, 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 Crohn's disease, um, what defines that, and what to do with those patients that also happen to have a cancer that would otherwise benefit from an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Um, so we take those patients um, and they can have any number of different pre-existing autoimmune diseases. But if they don't have um, a previous experience with an immune checkpoint inhibitor or specifically any PD-1 or PDL one and we believe that those patients would potentially benefit, those patients that would then be eligible for the clinical trial, and we would basically just treat them uh, at this point with single-agent nivolumab, but we treat them in order to both gain more understanding of the safety for those individuals, but also the efficacy and those uh, important biomarkers that might actually change um, when you give, again, what I consider to be this blunt instrument um, that is inhibiting the interaction of uh, PD-1 with PD-L1. Um, uh, clearly, it's quite important in the control of viral diseases and the control of cancers. So um, uh, it's got to be um, uh, centrally important in at least some of these other autoimmune conditions. And I think we can learn from that and allow for some cross-fertilization of ideas into the fields of autoimmunity and cancer immunology. Awesome. Um, you know, it's really great that you're running this study a lot. And I wonder if you can share a bit about the um, outcomes of the trial. Um, are you looking mostly on safety endpoints or tumor efficacy endpoints? It's designed really as a safety trial, and it's uh, clearly heterogeneous in terms of the number and types of patients that are enrolled because they have um, any real condition from Hodgkin lymphoma to mesothelioma, and you can't really make any conclusions um, with such a heterogeneous group of patients um, that, that could be enrolled in a given cohort. So it's really designed, in a sense, as a safety trial. Uh, all the cohorts are meant to be safety feasibility um, uh, in terms of the endpoint, so no more than 12 patients per cohort, uh, but the cohorts are defined most, you know, mild rheumatoid arthritis, moderate um, or severe rheumatoid arthritis, or uh, mild um, lupus, uh, and that's, that, that's where the expertise of the autoimmune disease specialist is actually so critical, because not only do they help us in terms of defining what the given cohorts should include, but also in managing those patients along the way. And so we have a national, um, uh, essentially, um, uh, national uh, investigator 
um, that is in charge of the inflammatory bowel disease portion of the trial, a national co-investigator that's in charge essentially as uh, of the rheumatoid arthritis portion of the trial. And so when the patients face any kind of toxicity, we inform our uh, national leads and collaboratively we come up with a plan to help manage toxicities that might emerge and determine what therapies uh, might help mitigate or control them. That's excellent a lot, especially about in involving and including toxicity experts um, nationally to, to kind of guide your management. Um, Rafi, um, I'm going to ask you the next question. How do you think results of um, this study may impact uh, clinical practice and how we think of patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease? So there's a, a couple of interesting components to this trial, which I think are really important. Uh, one, this is a proof of principle trial in this setting where, um, as Dr. Sharon mentioned, uh, we're looking at different uh, types of underlying autoimmune diseases and different types of cancers and evaluating safety of um, nivolumab in the setting. There have been retrospective studies um, that um, have kind of shown, um, some studies have shown, especially in melanoma, that the rate of uh, activation of uh, the underlying autoimmune disease or flare of the auto autoimmune disease um, is not as high as one would think, but some others, uh, some other studies have shown some different results. So, which makes it really important to understand this from a clinical trial standpoint. Now, the other very really interesting aspect of this is um, a lot of current efforts are being directed towards understanding mechanistic, under providing me mechanistic understanding of immune adverse events using biomarkers, etc. Some of the initiatives I really like to highlight is the Alliance trial. Uh, where Dr. David Kozino is the, and Dr. Ilaj Shorn is also part of that effort, and also the iCheckIt trial looking at adverse events. Uh, it's a SWOG initiative looking at adverse events in patients treated um, with standard of care therapies. Now, the limitations associated with such trials, even though you know, these are um, very important trials, uh, the two that I mentioned is capturing patients at the right time point when they develop adverse events and doing the translational studies, collecting the samples. So a study like AIM-NEVO becomes really important because you're specifically targeting patients where there's a hypothesis that potentially, you know, the, uh, uh, the underlying flare may be a limitation factor for these patients with cancer treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So if you're capturing these patients um, with potentially a high predilection for adverse events, then you have the ability to conduct these interesting biomarker studies. Uh, and at the same time, from a clinical standpoint, see if the benefit obtained um, uh, due to treatment surpasses the um, uh, effect due to the adverse event if, if, if a patient may encounter that, depending on whether it's a rheumatological adverse event or some other CNS-related adverse event. So I, I think these aspects make the study really interesting, and there's no um, good way to answer this question um, apart from doing a clinical trial, which is what Dr. Sharon and uh, Dr. Tawabi have embarked on. Rafa, I completely agree with that, and it's important to study these uh, special populations in detail. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested, uh, you recently published very interesting data on a special population of patients who are pregnant. Um, in your in a retrospective cohort of patients, um, I was wondering if you could share more also about uh, your um, pregnant cohort of patients with our audience. Thank you for that question. So this was an initiative that was um, led by my um, good friend 
Dr. Arjun Mitra from um, Ohio State University, uh, who uh, was um, also in the same division at the NCI when I was a fellow there. And Dr. Ilaj Sharon uh, was mentoring us on this project. And um, we uh, looked at, because there's no data uh, related to patients uh, who are treated with immune point inhibitors and uh, at the same time have a pregnancy. Uh, so we looked at um, NCI, sponsored clinical trials, approximately uh, 129 uh, immunotherapy-based trials, and identified um, n approximately nine inadvertent pregnancies um, or patients who became pregnant while receiving immunotherapy agents, um, including um, one patient who received vaccine. And most of these patients, the nine patients, were um, uh, female patients who had received uh, adjuvant treatment for melanoma. So majority of them were patients uh, who had melanoma as a cancer. And um, interestingly, the, the theme that emerged from this paper was uh, seven out of the nine patients that uh, did not terminate their pregnancy had live births and um, approximately a follow-up of four weeks after postpartum follow-up of four weeks, all the seven um, uh, um, infants um, were reported to be normal. So there was no significant birth defects that were identified. So one limitation was we did not follow these patients for a couple of years to identify if there was any subsequent uh, events that um, could be um, identified. But we did see that within the time frame that we did have some reported follow-up, we did not see any significant issues. So the, the underlying biology, um, as uh, some uh, listeners may know that the PD-1, PD-L1, uh, and the CTLA-4 axis is important in um, maintaining the maternal um, immune tolerance towards the developing fetus because the developing fetus is um, technically a distinct entity, a, a distinct genetic entity. So um, some of the pre-human um, uh, studies, in, especially in uh, non-human primates, have shown that there's an increased in incidence of spontaneous abortions in uh, these animals uh, that receive immune checkpoint inhibitors, which is why uh, uh, most clinical trials exclude pregnant patients and uh, require uh, patients of reproductive potential to use at least two contraceptive methods while receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that basically there's no data in this space. And we've had clinical instances when young female patients um, have uh, asked us uh, if they're receiving treatment, for example, for say melanoma or sarcoma, and if they want to conceive in the near future, uh, how would that play into this whole uh, context of receiving immunotherapy? So uh, I think our paper, even though it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's a small study, uh, it, uh, is not, um, it does not shape practice, but uh, I think what it does is provide some evidence um, in terms of having an informed discussion with uh, women with cancer. Um, to uh, you know, have a decision whether if they become, wish to become pregnant while on therapy, how things may, um, uh, uh, what kind of things they might want to know about or um, expect uh, if they're um, if they're interested in uh, conceiving post therapy or even while therapy. So I think there are some um, initiatives, translational uh, in initiatives, looking at. Um, uh, pregnant patients uh, treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors better understand you know, the bioavailability 
of the drug to understand uh, if it crosses the placenta, what effects can it have on uh, the developing fetus, because most of the uh, patients with uh, uh, pregnancy in our cohort uh, were identified to be pregnant within the first trimester, which is when organogenesis takes place. And interestingly, all the babies that were born that were um, uh, born at the end of the pregnancies did not have any birth defects. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this space, but I think um, this paper led by Dr. Arjun Mitra um, and myself and Dr. Sharon, I think, provides some interesting uh, insights as to what uh, are the next steps that we should look towards to inform decision-making in this unique patient population. Thank you, Rafi, for breaking that um, information down for us, especially um, um, I really like how you shared how this can impact clinical decision-making, especially with female patients who are diagnosed with cancer and are embarking on the immunotherapy um, journey. So thanks so much for sharing that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with uh, special populations and patients over 80 receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors? Were they more likely to get immune-related adverse events? So thank you uh, again for that question. So this question uh, that you're asking is related to uh, a recent paper that uh, was pub published um, a few days back in uh, JAMA Oncology. And this was a, a big multi-center retrospective project that Dr. Carolyn uh, Nabhan, Dr. Doug Johnson, and uh, I led. And it in involved around uh, 18 centers across US and Europe. And we compiled data on patients uh, who were more than 80, age zero years, treated with single agent immune checkpoint inhibitors. And this included all different tumor types, but we uh, primarily were looking at melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, and um, GU-based tumors for efficacy. From a toxicity standpoint, we looked at the entire cohort and um, did find around 40% uh, incidence of uh, grade one or higher adverse events, and around 16% patients discontinued uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors due to toxicity, which is not significantly different from what you would expect in, um, and this is a real world data set. Uh, and so this is not significantly different from what you would expect in younger patients. Uh, but one of the interesting findings was that patients who were older than 90 years uh, there was a higher tendency for discontinuation, uh, which brings in the question of, uh, you know, oncologists, how comfortable they are when they experience, because a decent number of discontinuations in this patient population also occurred uh, with low-grade immune adverse events, so not necessarily just grade 3, 4. So uh, the question in this patient population that is unique because um, of frailty, because of uh, other comorbidities is, uh, you know, oncologists trying to be, um, I guess, more careful and having closer monitoring of this patient population when they're treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So um, we did see that there was a certain degree of hospitalization also in this patient population, around 57% were due to grade 3, 4, but there were some hospitalizations also that were due to low-grade adverse events, which again uh, brings forth the question about, you know, the comfort level of uh, oncologists when they're treating low-grade adverse events in this unique patient population. So when you treat these patients with steroids, even though we didn't explore this in detail, some of the things that one would want to um, uh, worry about is when they have other medications, they already have other comorbidities, then you're putting them at risk for, for example, um, psychosis, sleep issues, sleep disturbances, 
or some older patients with diabetes uh, may have complications from steroids. Um, so some of these things need to be carefully evaluated in this patient population. And our paper, I think, is a step forward as a proof of principle because there's no uh, way to uh, obtain this data from clinical trials since patients more than 75, it's less than 5% patients end up being on clinical trials, although there are initiatives right now lent, uh, um, that are uh, led by SWOG and Alliance, um, specifically looking at clinical trials in poor performance status and older age patients. So I think our paper is a step forward in this direction and provides uh, important data uh, to help answer some of these questions when an oncologist is having this discussion with an older age um, patient uh, who has cancer and intense uh, treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Well, thanks, Rafi, um, especially about highlighting the unique challenges in this uh, patient population. Now, Ilad, um, let's move on to you. And I have a question uh, regarding how you envision uh, the changing landscape and how early clinical trials with immunotherapy agents are designed in the future and executed in the future with the broader um, experience learned over the last few years. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. And, and, and thanks also for Rafa bringing this up um, about these special populations that are increasingly receiving these agents. Uh, in the real world. And I think that that's what we're going to um, be dealing with, at least with regard to how um, uh, early, um, earlier and earlier we'll be seeing more and more patients have exposure to these immune checkpoint inhibitors earlier in their disease course um, and also much more um, uh, acceptably receiving it um, uh, agents uh, of an immunotherapeutic benefit uh, or that have potential immunotherapeutic benefit um, uh, will be included um, in uh, a much broader set of patients. And so what I think we've already kind of discussed um, uh, is that uh, over time we'll probably end up um, uh, giving uh, these drugs neoadjuvantly um, uh, certainly to those patients that are um, older and considered less fit um, uh, in a broader um, uh, range of uh, conditions. Uh, and that um, uh, will probably be mostly acceptable because our understanding of how to manage adverse events will evolve over time where we end up in a situation where perhaps um, we have an antidote, so to speak, or at least a proper therapy for a given toxicity. Um, you know, just as uh, an example, um, you know, I think that uh, there are certain types of uh, colitis, I think, uh, um, uh, lymphocytic microscopic colitis um, that uh, on biopsy might indicate a particular therapy like budesonide might be more appropriate than um, uh, uh, steroids that are more peripherally absorbed, like corticosteroids um, uh, that uh, we more traditionally are giving now. Um, uh, in addition, um, there are um, uh, uh, trials that are at least being contemplated right now uh, using drugs like abatacept for some life-threatening conditions uh, like myocarditis. Those types of advances in managing toxicities will make it much easier for people to justify giving their sicker patients, their older patients, their patients with 
additional comorbidities, access to these therapies, along with the fact that we'll be giving these drugs to uh, a broader range of patients already with regard to melanoma, which has always been at the forefront of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies, uh, at least over the past decade. Um, uh, we're talking about giving to patients who have stage two melanoma adjuvant therapy. Um, uh, we're doing trials like S1801 that look at neoadjuvant therapy in melanoma, at least with stage three melanoma, stage three and four melanoma that's uh, potentially resectable. Uh, and so since those will end up affecting more and more patients, we'll um, uh, have a broader range of uh, comfortability um, with uh, improving our inclusion and broadening, broadening eligibility. I, I, I'm hopeful that trials like AIM-NEVO, uh, trials like the iCheckIt trial that uh, Rafe mentioned, uh, and the uh, NCI Alliance Biorepository, those uh, efforts will also provide more translational information that make it easier for us to think about how we can broaden access to these life-saving therapies and also mitigate the potential immune-related adverse events that inevitably are included along the way. Thanks, Alan. That was a really great summary. Um, I, I wondered, um, Rafe, if you have any other last wrap-up comments about these special populations as well as thinking through uh, the immunotherapy experience and um, future steps. Yes, thank you so much. And I think um, Dr. Sharon summarizes very uh, aptly. And the only few things that I'd like to add, and these are just based on my interests, are you know, identifying um, patient-specific tumor immune microenvironment factors uh, that make a patient a good candidate or a bad candidate for a trial. So incorporating technology, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, natural language processing-based algorithms, or machine learning uh, in this perspective, I think would significantly impact how we recruit patients to um, certain trials or how we um, uh, justify recruitment of patients to certain trials. So I think uh, it's a combination of things and there's uh, certain developments that are being made in this field. And uh, a lot of it also depends on obtaining uh, biomarker data for future um, assessment using these artificial intelligence-based algorithms. So uh, NCI-sponsored trials, for example, or cooperative group-sponsored trials, which uh, have a strong biomarker translational component, uh, would uh, be immensely important in uh, generating some of this data. So similarly, again, this iCheckIt trial that's being led by Dr. Guntur and Dr. Kudra in SWOG um, is another important initiative with um, you know, involves collection of samples similar to the Alliance uh, biomarker trial where um, these sort of data, uh, when used appropriately using uh, the technology that I mentioned, would help guide future therapeutics and identify the right patients for the right trials. Excellent. Thank you, Rafe. I could not agree more with you when you talked about um, using machine learning models and artificial intelligence to kind of enhance what we're doing and use that as an additive uh, tool to identify high-risk patients or uh, apt patients for a trial. Well, thank you both, um, Rafi and Alad, for joining us today and sharing such important and enlightening findings with us and our audience. It was a real pl pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us again. 
Thank you so much for inviting us. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate how, being able to have this discussion and hope for many more in the future. Thank you again. And I think um, Dr. Sharif and Dr. Shank, I think this is a great initiative and I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Checkpoint now. And I hope other listeners uh, uh, also tune in to um, what we discussed today. And uh, I look forward to future feedback and as well as listening to your future sessions with other investigators. Thank you. Oh, we appreciate that so much um, and certainly appreciate your time for joining us today. For our audience, please remember to tune in again um, and you can reach us at checkpointnowpodcast at gmail.com. And also please remember to follow us on Twitter at checkpointnowmd.